Good evening. I'm Joseph Martinez, and welcome to Dead Time Stories, a podcast by Graveyard Shift dedicated to telling just that. Scary stories submitted by real people. Whether the stories are real or not, who knows? But they are scary. Tonight, our host, Deadhead, shares with you six tales. Now, please forgive me. I can take you no further. But your stories lie just ahead. Do be careful, though. Deadhead can be... Mercurial. I'll wait for you here. Godspeed. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. about things breaking. First, a tale of teens who sneak into a house only to end up on the trip of a lifetime. <laughs> I call this one high tension. Oh man, it was supposed to be a fun night, a little party. How'd it turn out so bad? So, me, my buds, Dave, Jim, and Tamara were walking around the neighborhood to toke up. We couldn't do it at our own homes anymore because our parents were on our asses. Which wasn't fair because it just led us to going to smoke somewhere dangerous. Like this. The Randall House. Biggest hell mansion that's been closed off for years. Been sitting empty and just collecting dust. Nobody knows for sure what happened. Some say old man Randall went nuts and iced his family. Others say there's a curse on the place and the Randalls disappeared. Others just say that they lost all their money in the dot-com boom and ran off. One thing was for sure, it was a place nobody would bug us while we smoked up. I still was nervous about it, going into this big spooky mansion. Not exactly the warmest environment to get high, but Dave assured me that we would have a fun time. Maybe even find some treasures or something. So. He pulls open a chunk of the fence and we make our way in. Cops don't care. Nobody's been watching this place in forever. The place is a mess. Dark as a cave with all the windows boarded up. The spiders might as well own the place because it's wall to wall and webs. There's a scream. 
I turn and find Tamara, <laughs> trying to pick off cobwebs as big as a heavy blanket. She hates spiders. We all have a laugh and walk into what was probably the living room. Old-timey antique furniture that's fallen apart, the same kind my grandma would have. And we see pictures, portraits of what were probably the Randall family. Old dude, hot classy wife, creepy kids, all that business. Jim gets it in his head to flip them off for some reason. We all have a laugh. Dave pulls out his bong and we hunker down in front of the fireplace. Tamara uses her phone as a light. I brought my favorite strain, OG Deadhead. <laughs> Felt appropriate for the situation. We were laughing, having some fun. Seems like this was a pretty good place to hang out after all. Dust notwithstanding. Jim gets so high he gets on his feet and says, I need something to eat, and walks into the kitchen. The kitchen which has probably been empty for a hundred years or whatever. But we don't bother correcting him. Time goes on and Jim hasn't been back in ages. Didn't he realize by now? Or did he actually find something? I wobble to tell the others that I'm going to go check on Jim. Maybe he got his head stuck in a jar or something. Tamara decides to follow out of curiosity. Dave's too stoned to move, just watching cat videos on his phone. We go into the kitchen. Must have had a lot of food back when the Randalls lived here. Now it's just a rusted fridge, rotting drawers, and old appliances. No sign of Jim, though. But... When we walk in, we find a pair of sneakers. His sneakers lying in the middle of the room without Jim's feet in them. Did he decide to go barefoot in this tetanus death trap? Then we hear it, Jim moaning as though he's on the second floor yelling, help. We think maybe he's playing a joke. It's gotta be a joke, right? We go back where Dave's sitting, only Dave's not there, man. The portrait of the living room is different. It, it looks like Dave. Hard to tell in the dark, but it almost looks like he's in that painting, screaming. Tamara's more freaked out than me. She wants to leave. A lot of people think that weed can cause hallucinations or it messes with your mind. Now, that might happen to some people, or if it's laced with stuff like LSD. But this is goddamn extreme, man. Tamara and I bolt for the door and try to rip it off its hinges, but it's stuck. Won't budge. Tamara's ready to have a full-blown panic attack, and I'm right beside her. We hear something. A clattering something. Tiptoe. Up the stairs or down, we, we can't tell. There's a weird green glow coming from the second floor, where we heard Jim's screams earlier. With the front door blocked and the windows barred, this might be our only way out. Tamara's hands shaking anxiously as well as mine. We hold hands as we make our way up those steps, slowly. The other doors are broken or locked. There's only one that's open, shooting out that sickly green light. We walk through. It's a bedroom, like one of those fancy Downton Abbey ones with the antiques and the big beds, covered in dust and webs, but still fancy, and it's glowing. 
The light in the ceiling is somehow working despite the place probably being without electricity. Everything's green. Welcome to my parlor, a woman's voice whispers. Old woman. I go. Tamara's the only one with me. So I thought. We're still holding hands and we look behind ourselves at the exact same moment. Someone is in the bed under the blankets. A humanoid shape. It shifts. That's as much as I can handle. I take a nearby candlestick on the ground and I smash the window open. Then we hear the most awful scream I've ever heard. Screams. The woman, Jim, Dave, Moore, all at once. I feel something shift. The house creaks. No time. No time. No looking back. We jump out, bracing ourselves for broken glass, onto the canopy, and onto the brushy lawn below. Some bruises, but we're so high and full of adrenaline that we barely feel it. We barely made it. Dave and Jim didn't. You'd think something like that would turn you off of weed, but it didn't. Tamara and I still smoke up. Far from that house. Hell, I need it just to stay calm and make the nightmares of the Randall house stop. Hey, Clarence, don't bogart that joint. There's nothing like a haunted high, is there? Well, sit tight, cadavers. There's more fright-filled fables after the break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. it is to make ends meet these days. Find out how this young student plans to get ahead in our next tale, Cream of the Crop. My name is Claire Burton. I'm smart, I'm determined, and I want to be president so I can make the United States work for everyone, regardless of class or social status. The problem is, if you want a position of power in this country, you need to be college educated. And to be college educated, you need a shitload of money. 
to come from money or else you're saddled with a shitload of debt. I scored top of my class in high school, but I don't have the money for an Ivy League education. So now I'm hoping to score a scholarship. It's not going as well as I would have liked. The field is extremely competitive and many scholarships can only take you so far. But then, my luck seemed to take a turn. I was accepted into something called the Nighthawk Initiative, a scholarship program that, and I'm quoting here, seeks the cream of the crop in less resourceful circumstances and help them rise to the top of America's melting pot. Which is just a roundabout way of saying help poor kids so they can get good publicity or something. Either way, if they're paying for my education, I'll take what they can give me. All they asked was that I join them for a special initiation dinner at a gala, but I cannot invite anyone else. Okay, some weirdo dinner kissing up to a bunch of wrinkled rich mummies. No big deal. I put on my best dress and take the bus to the address. Some old dining hall in the hills. There's a bunch of people there in their Sunday best and driving their antique cars. When I get to the door, I'm blindsided by a lady in a red dress and holding a glass of wine. She shakes my hand with the one not holding alcohol. I'm Susanna DuPont. I personally selected you for this year's Nighthawk Initiative. You're special, Claire. I knew it. I thanked her and followed into the building. If I was worried about getting stiffed, those fears were laid to rest. The place was huge and packed. Buffets at every side, rich donors at every table. Eventually, she took me up on stage where other kids in similar economic situations like mine sat. Just one more indignity to be faced to move one step forward. I sat at the end next to another kid in an ill-fitting suit. He introduced himself, Diego Perez. He actually went to my high school. We just never really talked. We caught up, classes, plans. He wants to be a doctor. He says he would vote for me. I said I could be his first patient. In the middle of it all, I noticed something. I looked behind the stage and there was like a big dude wearing a burlap sack over his head. It was crazy. I looked back, but then he was gone. I ignored it. Must be a costume for some sketch later. Then, Susanna tapped her glass to get everyone's attention. I smiled my prettiest smile and prepared to get our picture taken. Little DuPont urban achievers, and how proud we are of all of them, right? Good evening, esteemed guest of the Nighthawk Initiative. She addressed the crowd. I am happy to report that this year's crop is the best we've harvested yet. Applause. That raised some serious red flags. Manacles clicked over my arms and legs along with the other kids. Now that really raised some red flags. The big mass executioner guy walked past me carrying a huge medieval looking axe. It was all starting to come together. We must reap the harvest of the poor so they may never grow too high, Susanna declared. It was a setup. The axe man approached the end of the bench. The seats are bolted down. We need to escape. Some poor red-headed girl with glasses screaming her head off. Then he swung and her head was off and we were stained with blood. I whispered to Diego, when I give the signal, lean back. I feel a creak. I hope this works. More heads fly. Diego's next. I cross my fingers. I yell at Susanna. Go to hell, you rich bitch. She's definitely pissed. She walks over to give me an earful, just as the executioner swings. I yell, back. We both lean and the screws pop off. The axe misses and is buried right into Susanna's chest. That's one problem solved. 
Everyone falls into panic, screaming, yelling. The executioner looks confused for splitting Susanna in two. Just what we needed. We struggle until the broken bench bends and breaks. We make a run for the door and I can feel all those rich wackos on my back and the heavy footsteps of the executioner. I look to the buffet. They've still got the propane burners running. Perfect. I use some cloth from my dress to grab the burner and chuck it at the executioner. He lights up like a firework. Diego settles for just kicking over tables until the fire spreads. He's a fast learner. More screaming, crying, and the smell of burning people. It was just the distraction we needed. We run out the door and into the night, the glow of the flames dying behind us. Diego and I both agree to wait on college. We're going to backpack across Europe. We won't be back anytime soon. I don't know about you, but I'd vote for Claire. Smart, savvy, and knows how to make Crouch get up and scream. <laughs> Let's take a break while I fan the flames of her success. Back for more hard-hitting booze? Our next tale is about a journalist who's just landed a great new job in a story I call Breaking. Reality is far more malleable than you think, especially in the internet age, an age where anyone can just make shit up and make it their mission statement. Hence why after years of college and going to grad school for journalism and even working as a reporter for a major metropolitan newspaper, I was let go. Lack of interest, they said. <sighs> Just like so many before me, we were pushed out due to people just finding it easier to find news on social media, even if what they were reading is fake or biased. I was out of a job and ready to start eating newspapers to survive. Then I get it. An email from some equity or real estate company called the Wolfer Group. They're expanding into media and they want experienced journalists. Seems like a scam, but at this point, it beat having to go hungry. I drive down to this campus, as they call it, out in the middle of the desert. I go in, and there's dozens of people just hanging out in the lobby. They have a little brunch for us sandwiches while we're making small talk. Right off the bat, I get that everyone there at some point worked for a paper or a magazine or site before getting laid off. We're the toys that nobody wants to play with. Then the head honcho walks in. Young guy, 20s, always smiling, wearing one of those Silicon Valley sweaters. Says his name is Tim, and he's the emissary sent by the Wolfer Group to oversee this information cultivation and disperser farm. So he said, we'd be paid handsomely and get to live on campus rent-free with all expenses paid. It seemed too good to be true. Like most things, it was. I moved in and started ASAP, 
They stuck us in this big room of computers and told us to find what would get people talking and clicking and to post it on the Wolfer News site and their following social media accounts. They're everywhere and on every platform. Easy enough. Alligators on the golf courses, ISIS in the heartland of America, politicians swearing in public, how the left or right sides of politics are going to destroy the country. It alternates. Then I noticed something. On the posting guidelines, they say absolutely no articles about UFOs, aliens, or related stories. It kind of makes sense. Weird stories with very little basis in reality. But out of all the bullshit we were spewing, would this be something going too far? Then I actually read our own website. A lot of it is the typical clickbait crap, but other stuff is targeted. One article putting the blame for society's ills on one side, then the next article blaming the other. Using faulty sources to cite minority groups for destructive trends, amping up war rhetoric against other countries. Worse yet, we have fans. Big name fans. Some senator in Utah citing the site and passing reforms to have protesters arrested. A governor on the East Coast having marijuana reforms shut down and having everyone who worked in the dispensaries locked up. Tensions are rising against Mexico and Canada. It's getting bad. I look on other actual reputable news sites and the story that catches my attention is an increase in UFO sightings globally. Apparently it's newsworthy enough for basic cable, yet we haven't got a single detail on it. Something is up. I need to talk to somebody. There's no rains here. I go into Tim's office where the door is always open, he says. I tell him how crazy these stories are and how could he push us into this. He gives me the typical runaround. Stuff about analysis and demographics. Then I bring up the UFOs. He goes stone cold. The smile is gone. He tells me to shut up about it and to never mention UFOs or aliens to him again. I press him. More runaround. He says he doesn't care what chaos Wolfer's stories cause. It's all part of the program and the program is popular. That night, I get ready to escape. I took as much material from the servers and emails as possible. I just need to get out. I make my way through the lobby. No one's there. And I try to open the door, but it's locked. Tim walks out of the shadows with a shit-eating grin and a couple of guards. They're wearing hazmat suits or something weird, and they're holding cattle prods. Tim says, You signed a lifetime agreement, so you work for us the rest of your human lifespan. That's a red flag if there ever was one. I sprint with all my might inside, locking every door behind me. If you're hearing this, they're going to find me soon. I'm barricaded in the computer lab, and I just read online about ships spotted over several major cities. I hope I'm not too late, but you have to hear the truth. Truth is out there, cadavers.
and it's telling me it's time for our next break. Stay tuned. would a mother go through for her child. Our next story tests those limits to the bitter end in a tale I call Care. Desperate times call for desperate measures. That was something my father taught me, and now I had to prove it. Ryan has a heart defect, can't properly pump blood much longer. He's in the hospital, bedridden, in a medically induced coma, and attached to life support. I've taken care of Ryan since his father died five years ago. I wish I could have saved him. I was determined to save my boy. Soon, I was called into the office of Ryan's doctor, Alton Keyes. Not only did he treat my boy, but he also handled the donor list. And if my son was going to survive, I needed him to give Ryan a new heart. Mrs. Bronson, it's not looking good for your son or his placement on the donor list, he told me matter-of-factly. Like he had done this a thousand times before, and would do so a thousand times after. He was bored. But all I could hear were the anguished, struggled breaths of my son, and how any moment could be his last. Your son is low priority. There was little else I could do. All my money went into keeping Ryan alive. Health insurance would do nothing. I'd been gone from the office so long, I was as good as fired. My army days were long behind me. Then Dr. Keyes smiled. He smiled wide. I was about ready to punch him for such disrespect in this situation. I think we can work something out. The world stopped. I listened. He said there were ways to save my son. He pulled out a manila folder and handed it over to me. Inside were pages of hospital records, accounts, and pictures. Their stats were highlighted, and certain organs underlined. It didn't take much to realize what he wanted. Healthy organs are absurdly valuable on the black market. He wanted body parts. I can use your skills. You find them, take the organs, put them on ice, bring them to me, just a few, and we can give your son a shiny new heart. Do we have a deal? I grabbed his ice-cold hand and shook it then and there. It didn't take long after that. Dr. Keyes had given me a kill list, and the sooner I collected, the sooner Ryan could be saved. I acted fast that week, finding these people one by one. Healthy patients, most of them just having had routine physicals so we knew they were in peak health. I'd find them, stick them with a knife, and put their bodies in Dr. Keyes' personal freezer where he could collect the organs later. It was sick. It was twisted. But I would take a life to save my boy's life. Dr. Keyes was overjoyed. Lungs, kidneys, bone marrow. I got it all without fail. He was making a fortune off those parts, and I was so close to finding the right heart for my son. He was all that mattered, the only thing that mattered at that point. He'll recover and we'll be a family again, and we can move on. I was so sure. It looped in my mind like a prayer. 
Eventually, Dr. Keyes contacted me, said he was able to pull some strings and bump Ryan to the top of the donors list. He would even perform the procedure in private at his freezer immediately. I was ecstatic. I had to do unspeakable things to make it here. It will all have been worth it. I went there immediately. Sure enough, there was Dr. Keyes holding a syringe and Ryan on a surgical table. He's all prepped. Don't worry. He's in good hands. I stepped closer to see my boy, only to notice how blue his face was. It was only in that moment did I realize that syringe was not for Ryan. I felt the pain instantly before the numbness and my body slowing. I slumped before the corpse of my son. I'll be able to make some extra cash off you and your boy, Mrs. Bronson. I owe you my thanks. Dr. Keyes didn't owe me shit. He used me. He steps closer. He thinks the serum's immediate. I can still feel my nerves, no matter how weak. He raises a scalpel to my neck. Moment of truth. I swing my knife at his hands. He yells in pain and terror as blood gushes from his wrist, painting the freezer red. The sticky liquid already crystallizing in the cold. I bury the knife in his chest before he falls for good measure. The look on Dr. Keyes being a face of slack-jawed pain as I bleed him dead pushing my numbing body onto the knife until it impales him to the wall and the lights go out in his eyes. The doctor is out, forever. With my last bit of strength, I embrace Ryan. All that pain and suffering for nothing. As is life, I suppose. And without Ryan, it's not one worth living. I feel the drug kicking in. I'm getting sleepy. At this rate, I'll be frozen along with the bodies. At least he'll be here for me as I go, and maybe I'll see him on the other side. But I doubt we'll be in the same place. How sad Adriana's heart wasn't in the right place. It should have been in her son. But have no fear, cadavers. You'll be in the right place just after this break. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today. Cadavers. I've just opened this dusty old coffin to find a thing long since dead. 
the video store. <laughs> and who remembers the first rule of VHS rental? That's right. Be kind, rewind, or else. Working in a video store, you meet some weird people. I'll never forget the weirdest. I'd been working at Videosmith for a few months. Decent gig. Don't have to deal with irate customers too much. It was just after 11. The Friday night rush was gone and I was alone. My boss Rob bailed and told me to close early. <laughs> Figures. Not too much to do in this town. And it was summer so most people were seeing the new stuff in theaters rather than bothering with tapes. I was just finishing a late night sandwich and getting ready to shut down when I noticed something. I wasn't alone. Somebody was moving throughout the aisles, the new releases section. I couldn't get a clear look at them, but we were still open, so I should have heard the ding on the door opening. I never heard anyone come in. He's in another aisle, and another. He's fast, and I can't see him through the displays, like a shark navigating a reef. Next thing I know, this dude pops up right in front of me. Tall dude. Must have been seven feet tall. He's wearing a heavy black coat. Really weird for summer. Under that was a shirt with a picture of a poster for that movie, the, the German one, Metropolis, with the robots. He got this wide brim hat that covers everything above the mouth. And what skin I do see is pale, like, like weird pale, almost like he's from a black and white movie. I wait a moment, mostly out of shock, before asking, Good evening, sir. How can I help you? He snorts through his nose like he's about to give this whole speech. He leans in, looming above me like a bird of prey. Good evening. His voice is all gravelly like he's fighting off a cold. I desire a film. He stops. Which film, sir? Videosmith has a wide selection. He raises his hand to pause me. The film is called The Videosmith. I blinked. Was there a movie based on the chain or something? I take out the video guides and listings on new releases. Nothing. I tell him, we don't have the movie, but he refuses to believe me. I know you have it. I've seen it here. He tells me, not budging. He stares at me and I can see his eyes. They're huge, bulging bug-eyed. And he's standing high above me, staring me down. I'm scared shitless. I ask him, can you describe the movie? Then he starts smiling like something just occurred to him. Yes, yes, he's giddy. It all takes place in the videosmith. This is going too far. I think you should leave. Maybe try another store, I tell him. He just grins wider. It takes place in this store and follows a young man named David who is all by himself. I've had it. Please leave, I try to tell him. I back into the rental aisles. He's pacing right behind me. Yes, yes, David, who is by himself in the videosmith, renting titles out to customers and thinking he's safe and secure until a fateful night. I can feel his giant eyes on me. I continue backing away. Maybe I should make a run for it. The fateful night where his greatest fears became reality. I stop and point at him. Get the hell out now, or I'm calling the cops, I scream at him. Instead, he grabs my hand. 
I yell and try to get out of his grip, but the dude's hand is like a vice. I manage to shove him, and, and VHS tapes go flying off the shelves. A, a tidal wave of Jerry Maguire and Independence Day tapes wash over us. He gets back up. And everything is about to change for David and the video smith. I get to my feet, eyeing the door. Do you know who made it, he asks. That grin somehow manages to grow wider. I scream, me, he proclaims in horrifying joy. This is it. I chunk a handful of tapes at his head and I bolt for the door. I don't dare look back. I'm sure he's right behind me, just waiting for his chance to do whatever it was he was doing. I sprint to the pizza place across the street. We call the cops. When they get there, he's gone. No sign of the stranger except for the turned over tapes in the aisles. No money's missing either. I file a report and life goes on. I'm nervous going back to work for a while, but I never see that guy again. Just back to the daily grind of recommending movies and rewinding tapes. I even help us set up the new DVD aisle. Then one day I see it. In the return bin is a tape. The kind you buy for home movies. It's labeled the Video Smith in ink. I never watch it. Tisk tisk, David. So rude not to watch. I'm sure it's a real scream. One last dead time story before I send you off to sleep, and it comes right after this short break. Ready for our last tale of trauma for the night? Our final story follows a couple into their dream home, which quickly becomes a nightmare. I call this one Blockage. It was going to be our dream home, the place where we could settle and even raise a family together. Carl and I have had it tough, like most millennials. Most of our money went into paying off debts and bills. He works at a solar paneling company, and I work as a web designer from home. We pulled our resources together, and a friend tipped us off about a listing. The realty company sent Mr. Malone. Out on the edge of town, an engineer by the name of Frederick Anderson had it built, and supposedly he abandoned it shortly after completion due to spending his money on it. The value has since lowered, and it actually fit our price range. It was perfect. It had everything. Two bedrooms, closet space, a garage, attic, basement, everything we could ever ask for. The wear showed in the kitchen, however. One of the sinks was backed up. Malone insisted it was just a fixer-upper and the pipes may need to be repaired. But it's a small price to pay for the home itself. Carl and I talked it over. We'll never get a better deal than this, he told me. I was tempted to wait, maybe shop around more. But we were so tired of looking at house after house that was too expensive for us. So we went for it. Malone was ecstatic and had to sign the deed immediately. Said he was amazed it had taken as long as it had to sell the Anderson place. 
It all happened so fast, and just like that, we had a home. Carl insisted he could handle the repairs rather than hiring someone. (laughs) I was ambivalent, but I love that man, so I left him to it. Then one night, within the first week, it happened. It must have been 3 a.m. We heard this loud dripping noise. I'll take care of it, Carl told me as he wandered into the kitchen. I could hear him struggle with the knobs of the sink and even plunger the drain. The noise persisted, followed by an odd gurgling sound, as if something was jammed deeply into the pipes of the house. The noises and clogging continued. Carl became obsessed with fixing them. He used chemical cleaners, a snake drill, wires, home remedies, anything you could possibly imagine. It was his fanatical mission. Eventually, he stopped going to work. He would just eat, sleep, and work on those pipes. I insisted we get a plumber or ask the city to send someone. No, this is my home and I will fix it. Carl never yelled at me like this. He wasn't himself and it scared me. It wasn't long after that he locked himself in the basement. All day, all night, he would look for the source of the clog. I was seriously contemplating calling professional help, both for the house and for Carl's mental state. Stay out of this, Jennifer, he'd cry out if he saw me. I stayed out of the basement after that. Then, one night, it came to a head. I heard a massive crashing in the basement along with the water spurting. I rushed down and saw the basement flooding. Carl had ripped the pipes out of the walls. We were overflowing. I grabbed Carl, tried to tell him to stop it, but he went into a rage. I found it. I found the source. He ran back into the open walls. I paused, frozen in fear. Carl had lost his mind, so I thought but that would have been better than the truth. As the pipes bubbled their stagnant water, something else arose, squeezing out the pipes like a squish-wet sponge. It was a body, a horrible, mangled, disgusting-smelling human body. A toxic smell filled the room, but it wasn't dead. It moaned an ungodly sound and wheezed and coughed. Strangest yet, it was covered in these black tendrils, like veins made of mold and fungus. Paul screamed in fright. I was frozen in place. You should have left, the body cried out. Then I realized it. Anderson didn't disappear. He was sucked into the house. Carl just reacted with anger. Get out of my house, he screamed. Instead, the bloated body of Anderson grabbed him and those dozens of tendrils wrapped around Carl. He yelled in terror, pulling me from my shock. It sucked him towards the open pipe. I grabbed Carl's hand. It was covered in filth and gunk. It was hard to hold him. I looked into his eyes with all my love and I tried to pull him from the brink. But the corpse and the tentacles were so absurdly strong, it felt like my bones would pop off. It wasn't enough. He slipped from my fingers and was pulled into the pipe. His screams of pain and anguish will haunt me to my dying day. He was crushed and twisted until he could fit inside those narrow, rusted pipes. Before I knew it, he was gone. But those tendrils re-emerged along with the gurgling for me. In a rush of desperation, I took a nearby gallon of chemical cleaner and poured it down the pipe. I saw the sorry state of Anderson. I couldn't let that happen to Carl. I took a nearby box of matches from a shelf, lit it, and shoved them down. With every ounce of adrenaline, I ran up the stairs as the screeching began. By the time I had made it out of the house, the septic tank blew sky high. 
The house was nearly undamaged, but the foul smell wafted across the area. Whatever it was that cursed this land burned with my husband and Anderson. The nightmare was over, and my dream home was dead. Jennifer's dream comes to an end, and so too must our time together. I hope you enjoyed our six stories about breaking. And do come visit me again soon. We have many more short, scary stories to share. Sweet dreams, my little cadavers. <laughs> You've made it through the night. Congrats. Let's get going before that changes. The six stories you've heard were written by Jacob Davison. Tonight's production starred Kayla Jeffries, Todd Denson, Todd Lights, and with editing by my younger brother, Martin Martinez. I believe you can find your way home from here. Until next time, farewell.